All right, folks. If you have a Bible with you, you can take it out and turn it to Acts chapter 7. We are going to be in Acts chapter 7 for a while because we're going to read almost the entire chapter together. And so we're going to read from Acts chapter 7. As I said, we are going to be reading through most of the chapter, and so get comfortable. Don't close your eyes. Just to give you a little bit of context as we, before we go in, this is early church. So Jesus has been crucified, risen from the dead, spent 40 days walking around, and now has ascended. And now the church is alive and well and is starting to preach and share the gospel. And what we're reading is about this man named Stephen, who wasn't a preacher, he wasn't a pastor, he was in charge of making sure that the widows had enough food. He was very much a servant leader in that way. And yet, he was hated and despised by those outside of the faith. And so there was this idea that why don't we get Stephen in trouble? We're going to tell the officials that Stephen has been blaspheming against the temple and about against God. This is where we get into the story. Stephen is brought before the high priests and the Sanhedrin, and the high priest asks him, are these charges true, that Jesus will destroy the temple? Are these charges true? Here's where we read. To this, Stephen replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even a foot of ground, but God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no children. God spoke to him in this way, Your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated for four hundred years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said. And afterward they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. And Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later Isaac became the father of Jacob. And Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. Because the twelve patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So he made him ruler of Egypt and all of his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our fathers could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father, Jacob, and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and our fathers died. 
Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought from the sons of Hamor and Shechem for a certain sum of money. As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt greatly increased. Then another king, who knew nothing about Joseph, became ruler of Egypt, and he dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months he was cared for in his father's house. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his fellow Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting, and he tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me like you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After forty years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to look more closely, he heard the Lord's voice. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals. The place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you to Egypt. This is the same Moses who they rejected with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself. Through the angel he appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of, the, of Egypt and did wonders and miraculous signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the desert. This is that Moses who told the Israelites, God will send you a prophet like me from your own people. He was at the assembly in the desert when the angel spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, and he received living words to pass on to us. But our fathers refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him, and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. And then skipping ahead to verse 51. Again, all of this was Stephen talking to the Sanhedrin, to the high priests. And he continues, You stiff-necked people, with your uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers the ones who rejected Moses. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? 
They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. The word of the Lord. It's a fairly large speech, sermon, that Stephen gives. But if you think that's large, he actually kind of just summarized most of the Old Testament. And so if you look at your Bible and you see like this chunk, that was a lot smaller than what he, he could have said. Today, we're starting a new series. This will be our series as we move towards Easter. The series is called Hope Has Risen. So we're going to be talking about hope. Today, I want us to talk about the story of hope that we find ourselves in, the story of redemption. If I were to ask you what your story is, what would you say? Think about that for a second. What is your story? For some of you, you would include in that story the story of how you and your spouse met. Maybe you would include the birth story of your child. Maybe you would include the story of fighting a terrible disease. Maybe you would include the time in high school. Or maybe you would talk about the story of how you got to be here at Chalmers. Maybe your story is the story of what God is doing in your life. Whatever your story is, however you would define your story, when I ask you what your story is, it's pretty clear that I'm not asking you to fabricate something. I'm not asking you to tell me a fairy tale. I'm not asking you to make up a story because you actually have a story. Your life is a story. And so when we use that word story, we're not talking necessarily about fiction because we have stories that are very real, very true. Today I want us to talk about another very real, very true story. It's the story of the relationship between humanity and God. It's a story of tragedy and redemption. It's a story that God has woven throughout the Bible. This book that we just read from, this book is a collection of books. There are 66 books in this collection, and there are over 40 authors of those 66 books. And yet, throughout this collection of books is one story. And it is a story of God's love. It's the story of God's redemption. The redemption story starts with a creative God who formed all that we see and know and created our world and the beautiful nature around us and even us people. He created us so that we could be in relationship with him, to receive his love and to love him in return. And yet our ancestors rebelled against God, this author of life and beauty and purpose, They wanted to call the shots. They wanted to be their own gods. They wanted to live apart from God. And so the relationship was broken. 
And yet God never gave up on us. It's the story of God searching out men and women who would trust him, who would follow him. And he gives them a promise that he would be their God and that they would be his people. And through people like Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Joseph and his fancy coat, God continued to show his love to humanity. When the Israelites got in trouble and became slaves in Egypt, they call out to God to rescue him, and he hears them, and he sends a man named Moses to lead the Israelites from Egypt, parting the Red Sea, freeing the Israelites from captivity. And when God gives the Israelites the promised land, this territory that they were to conquer and possess and live in, that he would bless It's part of that same story. And when the Israelites whine and complain and want to go back to Egypt, that's still part of the same story. You see, the Israelites, they had this horrible habit of not trusting God. Maybe some of us have that same habit. They would look at what they didn't have instead of what they did have. You may remember as they were in the, in the desert before they go to the promised land, God provides them with manna and quail, provides them with water from rocks. And they complain and say, oh, we had it so good in Egypt. We had great feasts. And they forget. Hold on a second. We were slaves. It's amazing how we forget. The Israelites constantly would turn away from God and they would worship false idols from other nations, and God would send them a messenger to tell them, what are you doing? I am the one true God. This is just a rock. This is just a tree. This is just some precious metal. This is not a God. I am the one true God. Follow me. And then the Israelites would come back to God, and then they would wander again. And God again would send a messenger to bring them back to him. When I read through the Old Testament, I don't know about you, but when I read through the Old Testament, I get this image of a yo-yo, a yo-yo relationship. The Israelites are close to God and then are far from God, are close to God and are far from God, are close to God and then are far from God. And each and every time, God sends his messengers, his prophets, to bring them back until God finally removes his protection from the Israelites and allows the warring nations to conquer them. Let's pause on the story for a second, move to some history. The Assyrians, in 722 BC, the Assyrian Empire invades the northern kingdom of Israel, taking captive most of the Jewish nobility and working class, and decimates the northern kingdom. Then, a couple hundred years later, in 586 B.C., the Assyrian Empire falls to the Babylonian Empire, and the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar conquers Jerusalem in the southern kingdom of Judea. This is when the first temple is destroyed, and again, the nobles and the working class are taken captive to Babylon. And We see this story still in the Old Testament. Then in 520 B.C., the Persians take over Babylon and they 
take over all those who Babylon had taken over. But at this time, the Jews were allowed to go back to their land, even though they were still now impoverished and oppressed. And this is when the temple was rebuilt. Then in 332 BC, the Greeks conquer the Persians, and all the while, the Jews are still in oppression and captivity and impoverishment. And then there's a very brief period between the Greeks and the Romans where the Jews actually rise up and they get their territory back, but then are quickly stomped on again by the Romans. And this is where we find ourselves into the New Testament. The Jewish people are in captivity still. They're now in their land, but they are oppressed by the Romans who own them, who have conquered them. And all this while, all this while, the Jews have been calling out to God for a savior. They have been calling out to God, as as Stephen says, for a prophet like Moses to come, to rescue them from the slavery that they are found themselves in, to bring them out of that slavery and to bring back the heyday, the glory days of the Israelites once again. Now put yourself in the shoes of one of those Jewish people. You see the Romans all around you. You have to pay the taxes to Caesar. You have a temple, but it's not in its glory. There are idols all around you, and you are still crying out to God. God, what are you doing? God, have you forgotten us? God, we need a Savior. This is part of the redemption story. And for those of us who are Christ followers, like Stephen, like Peter, like Paul, we see this redemption story. And we see that that's not the end, but that God sends Jesus, the Messiah, the chosen one, to come and to teach the people that God is close to them, not, not distant and angry, but that he loves them and that he is coming to reconcile them. And as we'll talk about next week, that that reconciliation looked a little different than what the Jewish people were thinking. And the reconciliation looked more like a cross than a gold crown. And that the cross, even when Jesus dies for our sins, isn't the end of the redemption story, but that he rises again as the firstborn among the resurrection. And then he sends and he gives the Holy Spirit to the church. And if, if you've been going through Acts, especially if you've done the, been working through the New Testament challenge, you will have gone through Acts. There are many different times where someone like Stephen recounts this redemption story. Stephen, Peter, Paul, they all start with Abraham, then go to Moses, then go to the prophets, as they are trying to explain who Jesus is and the importance of Jesus' death and resurrection. You see, for them, for the Jewish people, the redemption story has to do with Abraham and Moses, David, prophets, Jesus. And it's interesting, when, when Paul talks to people who aren't Jewish, he changes his mode of operations a little bit. 
When he goes to the Greeks, he talks to them about God. But he doesn't do the whole redemption story because they don't understand the whole redemption story. Instead, he goes to the Greeks and he says, I see that you're very religious. In fact, you even have an altar for the unknown God. Well, let me tell you about this unknown God. He's known. He was made known through Jesus Christ. And shares about that. But there is a redemption story. And the fact is, folks, you and I are part of that redemption story today, right here. And we can look at the end of the Bible, we can know how the redemption story ends, that Jesus is victorious, that God wins, and we can know that we chose the right team. But we're still in the story of God's redemption. Unfortunately, though, our culture that we live in has a hard time connecting with that redemption story. For one thing, we don't live in a Jewish culture. Frankly, we don't really live in a religious culture where we're fairly spiritually open, kind of like jello, where everything kind of wobbles and, and there's a lot of, of synchronization. And, and well, I'll take a buffet piece of your beliefs and your beliefs and your beliefs, and I'll kind of make a mishmash. It's kind of like jello. It just wobbles. So we live in this culture that the redemption story, the way that we know it, the way that we see it in Scripture, it's a hard story for people to hear and understand. The Jewish people could hear it, could say, yes, I agree with Moses. Yes, I agree with David. Yes, I agree with with Abraham. Yes, I agree with the prophets. Oh, so you're saying that that's why Jesus came? But for the people that we live around, for your neighbors and your family and your friends, that redemption story needs to be told, I believe, in another way. How many people here have heard of Star Wars before? Okay. When Star Wars came out, Star Wars is a nine-part story. But when it first came out, it started in episode four. Then went five, six, then went back to one, two, three. And I won't ask you whether you thought those were better or we won't go there. And now they're coming out with the endings. But the idea behind that, the idea behind starting a story kind of in the middle of the story, it's an intriguing idea. It's called reverse chronology where you kind of hear the end of the story and then you have to go back and see. That was really intriguing how it ended. I want to know how the beginning starts. I want to know the story. I want to suggest to you that the best way for us to share the redemption story with our culture is to share it from the part of the redemption story that we are part of. That your lives tell the redemption story. And that when people look at you as hope-filled people, that it might intrigue them enough to say, I want to know more about why they have hope. And to bring them back to the cross and the resurrection. And so I I want to share with you a few ideas of how we, in our lives, can share this redemption story with others. Number one, we need to live hope-filled lives. 
if we are to show the redemption story, if we are to show that we are people of hope, then we probably should look it. We probably should act it. Our culture is so pervasively cynical and in despair that people who are living hope-filled lives will stand out as beacons of light. This week I had the opportunity to talk to a family whose mother was dying. And as I went into the hospital room, I knew, I had been told before, that this was a family of faith. This was a family that knew Jesus. And my goodness, when you walk into a hospital room where there is hope, it is amazingly different. It is amazingly different. I've had the privilege of walking with a number of people as they die who know the hope of the resurrection of Jesus, who are firm that this life is not the end. And when you go into a situation that in many cases seems very dark and there is light and joy and peace, it stands out. It looks different. We are people of hope. And so our lives need to be filled with hope. And then they will look like they're filled with hope. Number two, we need to change how we talk about ourselves. All of these are very much interconnected. Change how we talk about ourselves. Have you ever noticed that there are two ways that people talk about themselves? Either as champions or as victims? Think about it. I beat the traffic. I got stuck in traffic. I picked the best line in the grocery store. I won the grocery store game. That's what we say at our house. Or, man, did I ever get stuck in line. If you look at what people put on Facebook, it's very telling how they see themselves. And often, if you have Facebook, look at, at people on Facebook, and, and unless it's memes that they're posting, if they're actually posting things about themselves, it often will go into one of these two categories. Either the, that they are the hero and the champion, or that they are the victim and have been hurt. And I want to suggest to you that as followers of Jesus, as people of hope, there's a third category. There's a third identity, and this is the identity that we as Christ followers should be. Not champions, that we did it ourselves, that we beat the odds. Not victims, like woe is me, the world's going to hell in a handbasket, and everything's just horrible, but as the redeemed. As the rescued. That is our identity. And it is an amazing identity that you have in Christ. That your life isn't because of your own working and your own intellect and your own muscle and everything that you've done and you've just pulled yourself up by the bootstraps. We all know that that's fake. 
Your life isn't that, you know, everyone's against you and everything's horrible. Because we don't live in that sin anymore. Our lives are as redeemed, rescued, ransomed people. That Jesus, because of Jesus, we have a fresh start. Because of Jesus, our lives can be full of peace and joy. And that Jesus has done so much in our lives that he is the champion. And because he is the champion, we don't have to be a victim of anything. We need to change how we talk about ourselves. Romans 3, 22 and 24 says this, There is no difference between Jew or Gentile, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all been messed up. None of us are champions. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. We stand as the redeemed, not because of what we've done, but because of what he's done. And when we recognize that, and when we get that in our heads, that that is our identity, that is a powerful place to stand. Number three, how do we be hope-filled people? By offering tastes of the kingdom of God. Jesus talks about how the kingdom of God is near, how the kingdom of God is here. And the, the overarching idea of this is that God's reign has broken into our world. And it won't come fully. We won't see the fullness of the kingdom of God until Jesus comes back. And we're kind of living in this this limbo balance where we have tasted and seen that God is good. That we have seen his kingdom, that we have experienced his kingdom in our lives. But it hasn't come yet in its fullness. And so we as Christians get to offer tastes of it, offer samples of it. Has anyone ever, there isn't one around here, but I know some people have memberships to Costco and they go like way down to the city to get like 500 rolls of toilet paper because they save 45 cents, right? (laughs) I get it. So at, at Costco... My parents have a, have a membership, and last time we were down, we went there because we wanted 500 rolls of toilet paper. And the greatest thing at Costco, sometimes at places like Sobeys, but definitely at Costco on a, on a Saturday morning, the sample ladies are out. If you time it right, like you can have like almost a whole lunch there. You just like get little cups of things. And last time I went there, the lady was spooning things out and I, and I reached for one and she like wrapped my knuckles because it wasn't on the right tray yet. Apparently there's a bit of a procedure. I don't know. As Christians, we get to share the samples of the kingdom. As Christians, we get to say, this is what the kingdom of God is going to taste like. This is what the kingdom of God is going to be like. Are you thirsty? Are you hungry? Jesus can satisfy you. This is what it's going to be like. Let me give you a taste of God's love. Let me give you a taste of God's grace that you would want more. One of the beautiful things is that whether you go to Costco or whether you just go to your own kitchen and and get a little taste of dinner before it's, it's done. It's not the full meal, but it sure whets your appetite. 
And as Christ followers, we get to share the aroma and the taste of the kingdom so that others might see and taste and know that he is good. And we do this in humility, not like, you know, we were the ones who made the the wonderful, delicious stuff. No, we, we didn't make anything. We didn't earn anything. We're beggars telling other beggars where to find food. That's about where we're at. We're the redeemed telling other people who need to be redeemed how to be redeemed. Offer taste of the kingdom in humility. Number four. How do we be hope-filled people? How do we share the redemption story with people? By focusing on loving people, not judging sin. By focusing on loving people, not judging sin. This is where churches just get it completely reversed. Where we really enjoy judging sin and have a hard time loving people. But when you look at Scripture, we're not the judges. When you look at Scripture, we're not the ones who are to look at other people and say, you're messed up. The Holy Spirit is the one who convicts people of sin. That's God's job. We're the ones who come and offer them Jesus. As one person said, the world is a thirsty place, and we have living water to offer. So why in the world would we stick more salting crackers in the people's mouths? That's not our role. The Holy Spirit tells people they're thirsty. Our job is to offer living water. Our job is to say, we know where that thirst, that hunger, that hole in your life can be filled. Only in Jesus. Number five, be ready to share the hope that we have. If we are filled with the hope of Christ, if we are filled with his message and his love, that's going to spill over to other people. That's going to spill over to the world. And so we need to be ready to share that hope with others. It would be a horrible thing to have hope and see someone who's hopeless and not to share it with them. It would be horrible to have a canteen of water and to see someone thirsty and not to offer them the water. Peter says in 1 Peter 3.15, But in your heart revere Christ as Lord, and always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Always give an an- be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. We have hope. And there are people who need that hope. And there are people who want that hope in their lives. They just don't know that that hope yet comes from Jesus. You are part of God's redemption story. You are part of God's story. You, the one who already has been redeemed. You, the one who has accepted God's love into your heart, who has embraced God as Lord in your life, and who is trying to follow Jesus each day. You are part of God's redemption story. My question for us is, do our lives reflect God's hope and love to others?
And if they do, great. And if they don't, let's think through that and say, how do we live in the hope that we have? How do we see ourselves as the redeemed? How do we offer tastes of God's kingdom? How do we focus on loving people, not judging their sin? How do we share the hope that we have? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask you to help us with this. Some of us may be quite hope-filled people. And there are people in our lives that are seeing that and are wanting what we have, your love, your grace. And Lord, there may be some of us here who struggle with that. Some of us here who have gotten really into the habit of judging people. Some of us who know where the food is and don't want to share. Some of us who want to look like the champion or want to look like the victim. And Lord, I just pray right now that you would forgive us, that we would lay those down at your feet, that you would once again fill us with the hope that you have through the cross and through the resurrection, that we would be men and women of hope, that we would be willing to go out and share that hope with all in words and in actions. Lord, I thank you for each person here. I thank you for those who have been living hope-filled lives for years, and I thank you for those who right now, through your Holy Spirit, are, are feeling convicted that something's, something's not right. And Lord, I just pray that as they offer that to you, as they surrender that to you, that you would renew in them the hope that they first had in you. Thank you, Lord, for partnering with us. Thank you, Lord, for allowing us to partner with you. Thank you, Jesus. In Christ's name, amen.